Hi, everyone. You are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite books and poems and how these works have shaped how they think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I am one of the principal investigators of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life Project, which, along with this podcast, is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. In today's episode, titled Walt Whitman on Hope and National Character, I speak with Professor Nancy Snow about why we should all be reading Walt Whitman in our current political moment. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Nancy Snow to the podcast today. Dr. Snow is professor and director of the Institute for the Study of Human Flourishing at the University of Oklahoma. Prior to that, she was a professor in the philosophy department at Marquette. She is also the co-director of the Self-Motivation and Virtue Project. Nancy is the author of many books in philosophy and also many articles, and she's currently revising a book on hope writing one on virtue ethics and virtue epistemology, and co-authoring a book on virtue measurement. Nancy, you are a busy and superhuman woman, and I'm so glad (laughs) that you took the time to join this podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. Okay, so you chose a poem to discuss Walt Whitman's Song of Myself from his Leaves of Grass, and I'm really excited about that because philosophers all too rarely engage poetry as an important resource or tool for thinking about happiness and the good life. I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about Walt Whitman, your interest in Walt Whitman, what draws you to his poetry, and what draws you to Song of Myself in particular? Well, those are all good questions. I've always loved poetry and I love literature. Part of my interest in Walt Whitman uh, simply stemmed from my general interest in poetry. But another part of it stemmed from my interest in the virtue of hope. And uh, in particular, from my interest in arguing that hope can be a democratic civic virtue. I chose Song of Myself because I think that it really captures a very positive, democratic, forward-looking, hopeful moment in American history. And I also chose to talk about democratic vistas in connection with this uh, project about hope. And that, too, is an essay by Walt Whitman. So I think they're interconnected, and I think that both of them have lots to teach us about hope. And certainly in terms of happiness and meaning, I think they both have a lot to teach us about that. That era was very much like our own in some ways. I mean, the Civil War was, of course, that moment in American history where the the young republic was torn asunder. Now we're in a moment of American history where there is not a civil war, but there is tremendous polarization and, you know, nasty, uncivil polarization. Uh, Aside from that, during Whitman's era, they were going through a time period of great growth. This was after the Civil War, and it was called the Gilded Age. And that was a time that Whitman criticizes uh, as being quite vulgar. 
and now, you know, we can see in our own age, too, a, a culture of materialism uh, in a culture uh, where vulgarity just reigns. And people don't seem to find it unremarkable. So I think in terms of those two points, the polarization and conflict on the one hand and a sort of descent into vulgarity on the other, our own age is quite similar to Whitman's. And, you know, I would say in terms of hope that Leaves of Grass is a very hopeful, ebullient poem about Whitman's identification with all of nature and all of humanity and the young democracy. So, you know, some people have suggested that Song of Myself is quite narcissistic. I think that's a mistake. I think that, you know, Whitman's concept of self is very expansive, but it is quite positive. And, you know, the question is obvious. I mean, did Whitman change after the Civil War? And I think if you look at Democratic Vistas, you can see that, in fact, he didn't. That he found in his Civil War experiences, especially his experiences in a hospital, he found great cause for despair, great carnage, great brutality, but he also found nobility, bravery. So there are, there are positive things that came from the Civil War that he latches onto. And that's something that is, I think, instructive for us in these days. Just picking up on all of this, you talk about how it's a, it's a hopeful moment. I just wonder if you could say more about what you mean by hope, because, you know, looked at it a certain in a certain way, it, it looks really bad. I mean, if one's sort of looking at it in a clear-eyed way, you can say, oh, well, actually, you know, things are not good, and they don't look like they're getting better, or, or who are we to say they're getting better? What kind of hope is, is at play here, and, and what's the ground of it? I will I will just share with you what I think hope is. And I'm taking some of this from the, the hope literature and philosophy, in particular the work of Patrick Shade, who writes about hopefulness as a disposition. And drawing on his work, I think that hope is a disposition of energetic openness to future possibilities. And I could say more about that. It's hope, you know, as a as a belief desire complex also. The the um desire that certain ends should obtain and the belief that it's possible for that to happen. And it seems to me that, that both the, the larger construal of hope as a disposition, as well as, as the belief, hope is a belief desire complex, which I call the bare bones conception of hope. I think both of those are in play in Whitman's work. And what Whitman was doing, I think, and I think this comes, comes out especially in Democratic Vistas, was encouraging the creation of a national literature in order to encourage the cultivation of a natural, sorry, national character. At, at the time that he was writing, that was just beginning. There were some American writers, some American poets. The national character was yet to be created. It was still in flux. We have, more than a century later, developed that more robustly. And so I think our time is still a time of conflict. It's not a time of conflict that was as deep as the Civil War. Yet we have greater resources with which to move ahead. And I regard Whitman as being one of these resources. You know, I've, I've argued that hope is a democratic civic virtue for the American context can be contextualized within the tradition of American pragmatism. But there are other 
uh, traditions that can be drawn upon. For example, the tradition in which we have hope in a nation because we want to be a shining city on a hill in John Withrop's construal. And then there's also a sort of a democratic tradition of the founding fathers and the great states people of American history, the great movements toward freedom of American history. And so those are all resources that could guide us in this time. So what I think we need is really a recovery of the nature of American history or sense of it, a recovery of a national literature and a national character. So that lest we forget, you know, we do have a noble tradition and a noble history upon which to draw. Now, many people would doubt that, that history has not been without blemishes. And so I'm not, not pretending that it's all perfect, but I am advocating it as a resource to guide us through these troubled times. One of the themes of Democratic Vistas that's so interesting is Whitman's belief that literature and in particular, poetry is going to have this transformative power. So I'm just, I'm just looking at this quote from the, from the essay. Uh, so he says, I suggest the possibility, should some two or three really original American poets arise, mounting the horizon like planets, stars of the first magnitude, that from their eminence, fusing contributions, races, far localities, etc., together, they would give more compaction and more moral identity to these states than all its constitutions, legislative and judicial ties, and all its hitherto political, warlike, or materialistic experiences. And that's an incredible thing to say. And I wondered if you could just say more about what is the role of poetry and literature in the cultivation, maybe a virtue more generally, but hope in particular? We do have a number of poets who sketch out what you might call the American or versions of the American soul. And I'm thinking of people like Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost, Wallace Stevens, Maya Angelou. These are people who, you know, are pushing us forward. And I believe it was Bill Clinton's first inauguration that Maya Angelou read a, a terribly inspiring poem at the end of it. And I can't remember all of it, but there was one line that said, look at each other and say to your neighbor, good morning. And to me, that is a voice of hope. You know, morning is the time of hope. It's the time when there is a new beginning. And the suggestion was that with this administration, there was a new beginning. And to have an African-American poet say that was tremendous. So, you know, there have been great strides forward. And so I think poetry, in the sense of connecting our souls with larger uh, vistas of meaning, with larger experiences, it is hopeful. It is a very hopeful endeavor. And I think poetry also speaks to something deep within us. Poetry isn't easy. It isn't easy to read. And poetry takes thought. Right? So if you are engaging with poetry, you know, you're doing something that is really necessarily expanding of your horizons. And so I think that is really a precondition 
not only for hope, but for all virtue. Because to be virtuous is to have certain sensitivities. Sensitivities to moral rightness and moral wrongness, uh, for one thing, but also sensitivities to the circumstances or situations in which virtue is called for. And reading poetry is one way of developing our sensitivities. So I think that virtue and the development of virtue really could profit from being linked more closely to various kinds of aesthetic experiences, such as reading poetry, coming to appreciate the visual arts and music, because that expands us beyond our immediate selves and brings a level of appreciation to our lives that we wouldn't otherwise have had. So that's why I think it's so important for the arts to be funded and um, encouraged. And I also think that it's a big mistake to think about cutting out funding for NPR, uh, NEA, uh, public broadcasting, because those are the national ways in which the United States focuses on the arts and forms the arts. And that is so important to the development of an intelligent and sophisticated citizenry that I don't think we can do without it. Right. So that last remark you were making kind of goes back to something that you were saying in the beginning about hope as being a a kind of civic virtue. I wondered if you could say more about that, because I think, you know, when we think of virtue, we tend to think of, you know, maybe courage or practical wisdom, it's kind of, or, or, or temperance. You know, we, th- we think about how to order ourselves and order our own lives so that we can do well, be a capable, successful person. But the idea of civic virtue has to somehow be related to us qua citizen or or political the the political parts of life do you think hope is a civic virtue i mean one that has this ineliminable reference to the political i think that it is a civic virtue because i think that if you if you broadly define hope as a disposition of energetic openness to future possibilities and if you take a bare bones conception of hope as a belief desire complex the desire to attain some end and the belief that the end is possible to attain, then, you know, almost any end, even immoral ends, can be put into that framework. Now, if you hope for an immoral end, obviously your hope is not a virtue. You know, it's, it's a trait, you know, it's a disposition or, you know, a, um, a, a mental state, you know, if you're not talking about dispositions, but it's not a virtue. Now, if you put in, as I have, that you know, you can have hope for knowledge and hope for truth, then you can say that hope is an intellectual virtue. Now that has to be fleshed out. Similarly with hope as a democratic civic virtue, you know, if you hope to achieve democratic ends or democratic processes and you have a commitment to democracy, then I think you have hope as a democratic civic virtue. And it's, it's tricky. I mean, it requires more argumentation than I'm able to sketch here, but I think it's, it's very plausible. And I do think that you see hope as democratic civic virtue in action. So, for example, I've written about a case that was studied by educational scholar Amanda LaShaw, and this was a case of Oakland parents who were uh, black and Latino, and they wanted better schools for their children. And so what they did was they 
got organized through, you know, it was a grassroots movement. They, they were advised by community organizers and they uh, got a bond from uh, the Oakland uh, city government. And later they got a donation from the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation and they got better schools for their kids. Now, this is a case in which I think they had hope is democratic civic virtue. They were not pushing for something that could be seen as a purely democratic end. So they were motivated by a desire to get better schools for their kids, which is a self, you know, self-interested. But I've argued that it's legitimate self-interest provided that they didn't use immoral means. And that's compatible with democratic civic virtues because citizens often advance their own self-interest through democratic means. And that's part of what it means to be a citizen. I was rereading Walt Whitman uh, in preparation for our conversation. And one of the things that's so striking about Song of Myself is that it's really clearly a celebration of human equality, of, of a kind of shared human dignity. And it goes back to this vision of an enlarged or an expanded self, you know, where the I that begins the poem, I celebrate myself and sing myself, which of course does sound sort of narcissistic and egotistical, but it, but it isn't because it turns out that this I, this first person singular has this ineliminable reference to the first person plural, this we. And he, he's sort of in singing and celebrating himself, he's meant to be celebrating every American, it seems, or, or somehow absorbing them into himself. And I wondered how this kind of prophetic almost vision of, of human equality is related to hope as a civic virtue, as you understand it. Is it just that Look, the, the end or the telos of democracy has to be a, a kind of equality or how, because it, it seems like it can't just be that we all participate because some people are, some people participate democratically to undermine equality, for instance. I think the, the people who participate to undermine equality are not being true to dem, dem, democratic ideals. Because I think it's clear that a democratic ideal is equality. The two big democratic ideals that are often said to be at odds are liberty and equality. I think Whitman here is giving, giving us a moral lesson. And the lesson is just about the equality and value of all people. I think I could turn and live with animals. They are so placid and self-contained. I stand and look at them long and long. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. They do not make me sick discussing their duty to God. Not one is dissatisfied. Not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one kneels to one another, nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one is respectable or unhappy over the whole earth." And there's one other line here. I won't read the whole thing. This is just what I want to point out. But there's one other line. So they show their relations to me, and I accept them. So, and to me, what this is saying is, get over it. You know, to people who are so concerned with things that are 
I don't know, ephemeral, superficial. I mean, you know, you've done something wrong, you know, so don't lie awake in the dark and weep for your sins. You know, you're in pain or there's something wrong with you, with your condition. Don't sweat and whine about it. No one is demented with a mania of owning things. Wow, talk about an indictment of the consumerism that we uh, see all around us. No one kneels to another. You know, nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago, and not one is respectable or unhappy over the whole earth. So it's it's a kind of a great leveler here. They show their relations to me, and I accept them. I accept them. I don't judge people, right? I just accept them as they are. And you might say, well, that's good. And then you might say, well, that's not so good, because there are people that we need to judge. You know, we need to judge people who have murdered others. We need to judge people who are addicted to opioids. We need to make those judgments. But from what basis do we judge them? Uh, I think we don't judge them if we are being democratic and hopeful. We do not judge them from the basis of moral superiority. We judge them as equals, and we judge them with sorrow that we have to do that, and regret, and with a hope that things will improve or that they will improve. I've just wondered about the role that nature is playing in the poem. The poem ends with Whitman describing himself after he's dead as as basically a, a, a piece of dirt on the bottom of, of your boot soles. And he says, you know, you will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. And he he seems to have this very strong connection with nature, which comes up in in the passage that you read where he's talking about the way he feels around animals. And I wondered in general, what does this have to do with a kind of transcendent perspective that, that he ultimately is trying to take in the poem, right? I mean, this enlarged I, this enlarged self, in order to create that, he has to take this kind of transcendent or some, some perspective where he can get all of America into view. And I, I wondered what you make of the role of this this kind of transcendence, maybe we could call it self-transcendence in the poem. And if that is at all related to hope, the cultivation of hope, as, as you understand it. For one thing, you know, when I look at the end of the poem, and you talk about being, or he talks about being dirt under your boot sole, I can't help but think, remember, man, that you are dust, and unto dust you will return. And so, you know, the idea here, I think, is that nature is what you come from, and nature is where you will go, and everything in between is a journey. Now, you could either react to that journey and to the beginning and the ending with despair and think, well, why bother? Or you can react with hope and seize the day and say, this is what, and I think Waltman takes a ladder, right? We seize the day. We are expansive. We look at everything that's around us. We take it in. And that's a very hopeful perspective. You know, it's a very hopeful perspective to be able to engage fully with life. 
and knowing that, you know, this is not all there is, and we don't know what became before, and we don't know what became after, but, you know, we're here. In Democratic Vistas, he talks about what is universal, native, and common to all Americans, but I think in a broader sense, all human beings, as something that the poet has to tap into and is what is going to sort of save the nation, as it were. Like we, we have to tap into what, whatever it is that's universal, native, common to all. And for, for some people, especially in, in, in ethics, you know, that would be some account of, of human nature as, as the, the basis ultimately for our equality and dignity, that, it, that there's kind of this metaphysical commonality. You know, we're, we're all human. We all have the potential for a specifically human kind of, of happiness and maybe even a specifically human political order. That is to say a, a political order that is best suited, you know, to, to the full potential of, of mankind or something. Do you, I mean, do you think he was at all, was at all in tune with that way of thinking? I don't know. One way of reading this poem strongly suggests it because there is a, you know, definitely a commitment to a natural order, but it seems to be not a hierarchical order. It seems to be an egalitarian order. And his vision of nature seems good, you know, like, like he, you know, when I, when I think about natural goodness or something, he seems to be thinking of nature, not as a realm of murderous disaster and in the, in the sense of like Werner Herzog or something, but no, like a, like a positive, a, a good thing and, and a teacher in a sense. Yeah, he definitely has a benign conception of nature. And, you know, there's there's nothing there that, that you know, there's nothing Hobbesian. There's nothing, um, uh, you know, even Augustinian, there's no original sin that I see. He's more like Men Mencius in the Confucian tradition. You know, Mencius thought that we're good by nature. And, you know, we have these four sprouts, and uh, and they're the moral sprouts. And I can't remember what they are right now, but, but, you know, as long as we cultivate those sprouts, we'll be okay, right? And so I don't know if, if Whitman has something like sprouts, <laughs> but he definitely seems to think that we have tendencies, and uh, the tendencies are good, right? You know, but he, he just seems to do away with moral categories. There is one passage... What is this blurt about virtue and vice? And so, you know, that is sweeping away all of these moral categories, right? So I was going to ask you about this. You know, I mean, you're, you're a moralist. You're, you're a virtue, an eminent virtue ethicist. You are. So, I mean, look, he says, I'll, I'll just read this. I am not the poet of goodness only. I do not decline to be the poet of wickedness also. What blurt is this about virtue and about vice? Evil propels me, and reform of evil propels me. I stand indifferent. Look, from one perspective, that's a very alarming thing to say. I mean, what what are we to make of that? Well, what do you make of it? Uh, well, one of, one of the things that occurs to me is that he's going back to nature, you might say, in terms of natural goodness. But the natural goodness is not a moral normativity. 
There, there's sort of a natural normativity there that really doesn't quite recognize the moral categories that we humans impose upon things. So that's one interpretation. And that's an interpretation that that presupposes, I think, or that that suggests that, you know, these moral categories have something to them. Another interpretation is that you consider the context in which he's writing. Uh, again, the context of a country in turmoil, right? Virtue and vice mean different things in different parts of the country. The Gilded Age, or that he rails against in democratic vistas, he thought was completely corrupt. So it could very well be that what is all this blurred about virtue and vice is just saying, save your categories. I don't put any stock in them. I don't take any comfort from these. I don't find them credible. I want to get out of this whole framework. And in this way, you know, he's kind of Nietzschean. This is a Nietzschean moment, you might say, where, where you know, I'm just casting off all of these things, you know, and I'm saying some things that are contradictory. Why? Because I want to break you out of thinking of these binary categories, and I want to give you a different perspective, a perspective in which you are free from the moralizing, and you just kind of accept things as they are and move forward with that. Yeah, well, he certainly, though, goes in for a lot of moralizing and democratic vistas. I mean, he can be pretty hard on people in that essay. I mean, I don't say that he's being moralizing in a, in a negative sense. You know, I mean, I do ethics. I'm, I'm fine with moralizing, but at least in that, and, and this is a different genre. I mean, poetry and essays, these are very different forms of writing. But he seems to want to call America to a much higher standard than it's managing in the time that he's writing. And he advocates, I mean, I know that you talked about how he's kind of throwing off the shackles of religion. And I think to a certain extent, that's true. I think certainly organized creedal religions are something that he wants to move beyond. And I think wants America and his vision to, to move beyond. But he does seem to me, and and I'm interested in your opinion about this, but he does seem to me to be advocating a kind of faith and and a kind of transcendent perspective. And I think the faith that he is advocating is sort of faith in an ideal that a hopeful democratic citizen will want to realize. I mean, it kind of reminded me of Dewey reading it. You know, Dewey's Dewey's a common faith. Does that seem? I mean, do they do they seem like fellow travelers? I think so. And you know, I have invoked Whitman as sort of a progenitor of the American pragmatic tradition. Richard Rorty seems to think that Whitman is part of the pragmatic tradition, as as well as Dewey. Rorty argues that in this tradition. Uh, hope is substituted for knowledge. And that's something I can't go along with. I think that hope needs to be tethered to knowledge. But, you know, Whitman is a, is a pragmatist in the sense, I think, that, you know, he's trying to construct an ideal. And um, and one of the Rorty's books is entitled Achieving Our Country. And the, the ideal there is the achievement of democracy, an ever-expanding vision of democracy. And if that is the interpretation a pragmatism that one is using, then yeah, I think Whitman is a pragmatist. And he's a pragmatist also in the sense that, you know, he's looking for what works. 
that truth is really what is effective. And what is effective is having an expansive vision of nature, having an expansive vision of citizenship in a democratic society. And what doesn't work are these stale old moral categories. What's an example of a stale old? I mean, is virtue a stale old category we should just get rid of? Well, for Whitman, it seems to have been. Uh, For us, I'm hoping it isn't. I mean, not only because I'm a virtue ethicist, but also because I think that we need it. But, you know, as a virtue ethicist, I have been struck by how many people want to, at least in the public order, avoid the use of the term virtue, because they think that it has old-fashioned, prudish, Victorian connotations that we don't want. And, and I agree with that. But So I think that we, what we need to do is to recover and revitalize this Aristotelian notion of virtue as arete, which is excellence. And so I think that, you know, somewhere along the line, perhaps in the, in the Victorian age, perhaps in the age in which uh, virtue was associated with certain kinds of religious scolds, it got a bad rap. So I think we need to get the term out of disrepute. But that's just the term virtue. So if you look at specific virtue terms, they don't seem to have this negative connotation. I mean, when you say bravery or courage or generosity, people don't recoil in horror and say yuck. Or justice. <laughs> or justice, right. 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 Yeah. So there's a little there's a little disconnect there between the, the use of the, the term virtue and the connotations that it's taken on, you know, that have been somewhat negative and, and the use of other virtue terms. I wanted to also ask if you thought, so this, this is connected to what I was asking about religion and faith. It, it does seem like even from a completely secular perspective that hope is, is related to faith in the sense that is, if, if hope is this kind of belief in a, in a better future and all of these potentials that can be realized. Um, it, it takes a certain kind of, of faith in an, in an ideal. I mean, you have to, in some sense, go beyond the evidence in front of you. If Whitman's just sort of looking around during post-Civil War Reconstruction and thinking, oh, you know, is everything going to turn out? Well, the evidence doesn't really look like it points that way. So you, you have this kind of faith, maybe it's faith in humanity, or, or however you construe it, faith in, in human ideals or values or, or something like this. And it seems to be related to hope. I, but I also wondered if there was a sense of the sacred running throughout Whitman's work. There's something sort of reverential about his poetry. I mean, we know that he explicitly imitates biblical language, but also cadences. And, and there, is, there is almost a kind of prophetic element to it, maybe even a, a prophetic kind of vision. Do you think he has a notion of the sacred? What, what's your sense of that? And, and if he does, what, what does it really amount to? I'm inclined to say, yes, he does have a sense of the sacred. And I think that there is definitely that prophetic element to his poetry. There are the biblical cadences, as you suggest. There is a sort of feeling of reverence. Some of the poem reminds me of the book of Genesis, you know, where, you know, he's talking about nature and almost in a creationist way. 
What do you think is sacred for him? I think everything is sacred for him. Let me put it this way. I think nature is sacred for him. You know, when he's talking about the massacres and the things that, that people have done, that's clearly not sacred. But when he's talking about nature and his fellow man, his fellow woman, and what they're doing in their work, everything is sacred to him. And there is no, there's no hierarchical distinction, which I think is, is what appeals to me about this. So, you know, in the, in the traditional sort of Christian, Aristotelian Christian worldview, you know, there is a hierarchy, a definite hierarchy. God is at the top, and then there's man, and then there's woman, you know, and then there are the beasts of the field and the plants. And here, you know, there's, it's more cacophonous, it's more chaotic, but it's definitely egalitarian. And, you know, in terms of the way that people nowadays, and I'm sure in Whitman's time, looked at the professions, you know, the, the doctor was above the, uh, the hod carrier, you know, in terms of the social worth or the perception of social worth of the labor. And we still have that today. And he seemed to think, no, everybody has their place. Everything is sacred. Everything is needed. And so it's that that I find appealing. And I'm, I'm a little bit torn here between saying that he thinks that this is sacred and thinking that it's spiritual. So there's definitely, there's definitely a spirituality about Whitman. And, and to say that, that it's sacred is a little bit, I mean, I'm a bit hesitant about that because to say that something is sacred is stronger than to say that there's definitely a spirituality about Whitman. Yeah, I think it is stronger because I think if something is sacred, it can be blasphemed against. The notion of sacred carries with it a notion of sacrilege that you can violate a sacred object or a sacred space. And but do you think that there's any room for that in, in his vision? Well, there could very well be, you know, and, and if it is, if, if there is sacred sacredness in his vision and sacrilege, then I would suggest that the sacrilege is just the blurt about virtue and vice. That is sacrilege for him. And moral condemnation is sacrilege for him. Or, you know, trying to trammel people within the context of a kind of artificial and constricting religion would be sacrilege because it constrains nature, which is, in a sense, it's primordial. So do you think that... There is a vision within the poem of what happiness is or what the meaning of life is. I think that there is happiness and meaning, and happiness and meaning is going about your life. I mean, think of all these passages where, you know, he's saying, I walked along the hills, you know, passages to that effect, right? Or I walked along the streets. You know, and I saw the the shoeshiner or, or whatever. Or I went to the docks, and here was what was going on. There was a bustle; people were doing their work, and it's kind of a happiness that I think that I see in, in the in the in the daily life there. That things are up and running. He's there in the land of the living, and he's happy to be there, and uh, and that's where he finds meaning in these ordinary tasks. So, ever been in a situation where someone is dying or they have passed away and you are in that space of grief, eventually 
you know, and it can take a long time, you come out of it and you come back to the land of the living. And that is where there's a sense of relief and of connection and of meaning and it's joy. This sounds terrible, right? But I feel that way sometimes when I come out of nursing homes. If you go to a nursing home, which I think are abominations, I understand why they exist, but that we treat our elderly this way is shameful. If you go into a nursing home, you see the state of the people, and they, they can't really do anything. And then you come out, and here's life going on. And it seems to me that that is happiness for Whitman, and that is where meaning is found. Yeah, and I think there must be some in this sense of of going on and, and living your life, it, it strikes me that it's not unreasonable to say that for him, this is really in some sense uh, being alive to or, or living in tune with nature, sort of not being alienated from nature, whether that's through materialistic pursuits or just a kind of an indifference to it. But again, I just, I have this sense that somehow for him, nature is, is a, a teacher or at least that part of his vision of himself and of, and of us human beings is that we are a part of nature. We don't stand outside of it and judge it, that, that it absorbs us and, and we absorb it. Yeah, and, and there's a sense in which that's very Aristotelian. I mean, if you think about, you know, Aristotle's notion that, you know, man is a social or political animal, and you think about the notion of entelechy, or this in, inborn telos to uh, be social and to self-actualize. So, you know, in being as we are, we are fulfilling our natures, but we are fulfilling it within the context of this larger natural order. Uh, and again, I'd say the only thing that I don't really see is this sort of hierarchy in Whitman. Well, that's brilliant. You've, uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to leave it there because you, you, you just made Whitman an Aristotelian. So, so now I'm happy. <laughs> well, that's good. So I, I made him a, a, a Confucian, a Mencian. At one point I was, I was tempted to raise Taoism because of the contradictions. I thought, let's not go there. But I think, but, you know, so we all try, you know, we all have these categories as philosophers and, and we try to interpret things within the categories that we're used to using. And it seems to me that that in itself is a violation of the spirit of Whitman. Well, but see, but see, now now you've backed away from the Aristotelianism. Uh, no, but I take your point. Well, this has been really this has been really wonderful and fascinating, and and hopefully the people listening will want to go back and take a look at Leaves of Grass, particularly Song of Myself, which is such a beautiful and moving and and striking poem. And again, I'm just. So happy that you chose it. As always, it's great to talk to you. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me to do this. And and thank you for uh, all the softball questions. I really... <laughs> you have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life Project which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on the works discussed in today's episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu, and check out our blog, thevirtueblog.com. Finally, 
If you enjoy this podcast, do me a big favor and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.